you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter 2, 4 to 11, which is technically two paragraphs. The, the paragraph actually runs from verse 4 through the first half of verse 10 in the NA27, and then the next paragraph is just a verse and a half, and I did uh, put those together. Um, Eric mentioned uh, the song selection uh, for this summer. It's Second uh, Peter chapter 2 uh, makes for a bit of a difficult song selection if you're a, a worship designer uh, because all of the paragraphs are on judgment. And so it's judgment, and then judgment, and then more judgment, and then, and then more judgment after that. And our text for this morning, more than that, verses 4 to 10a are one sentence. That's all one sentence. Uh, the first part of the sentence runs from verses 4 to verse 7, and then there's a parenthesis in verse 8, and then the argument finishes off in verse 9 and 10a, and it's a, it's a complicated sentence. It's somewhat of a complicated argument, but hopefully we won't have much trouble making sense of it, broadly speaking, which is what we're going to attempt to do. Let's stand together. Second uh, Peter 2, verses 4 to 11. If God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Just before we go to prayer, our prayer will come largely from Psalm 146, and I was struck as we arrived there to remember um, writing something in the margin of my Bible there. It turns out a little over five years ago. Uh, five years ago on June the 6th, when I was coming to church in the morning, I was listening to NPR, and the whole Time they had one long story on the celebration or the remembrance, really, of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, June the 6th, 1968. So that tells you that I'm remembering 2018. And then for my Bible reading that morning, I had Psalm 146, which opens this way. Praise the Lord. Let my soul praise the Lord. 
I will praise the Lord with my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. You shall not trust in princes or in a son of man with whom there is no salvation. For his spirit goes out and it returns to the earth. And in that day, all of his plans perish. Oh, that's striking when you've just been talking about Robert F. Kennedy, who was probably about to become president of the United States that fall. At least a very good shot. And then everything's changed. Gone. All his personal plans, all the plans of his party, just reminds us all of these things that we see and hear about and why they're all in God's hands. And it's a great thing to tap into the perspective of the Word of God that reminds us of that every day that we read it. Uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do praise you, our Lord. Our soul praises you as the one who simply and absolutely is. May we praise you, as the psalmist said, as long as we live. May we sing praises to you as our God. The length of time that we still have life. For all around us. People go out, they live their lives, they come to an end, their bodies return to the earth, and in that day, all of their plans perish. Happens every day, happens all the time. Blessed are we if we know you who are the God of Jacob. If we make you our help and our hope is upon you as our God, that we are those who rest our hope and direct our prayers to the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, to the one who keeps faithfulness to your own word and to your own promises and keeps faithfulness forever. Your word never perishes. The one making justice in behalf of those who are oppressed the one who gives food and life and sustenance to those who are poor, the one who sets free captives, sometimes setting us free from the captivity of poor health, setting us free from the captivity of addiction, setting us free from the captivity of ourselves and our own tendencies, be it angry tendencies or arrogant tendencies, but you are able to set us free. You are able to open the eyes of the blind. You are able to bring up those who have been cast down to the ground. You assure us that you are a God who loves the righteous. You are a God who keeps watch over those who are sojourning through the earth, the orphan and the widow, but that the way of the wicked will certainly perish and often suddenly perish. O Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you are a king forever, and you are our God. We gather this day to praise you and to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
be seated. open with another song lyric, one I've used many times, really one of the most iconic lyrics of the last generation. In fact, it, uh, for those who tabulate and keep track and really guess about such things, it's, it's listed as the 30th, in some list, 30th most influential lyric uh, of songs written in the 20th century. Came out in 1971. John Lennon was 31 years old. The Beatles had just broken up, and his first solo album was called Imagine, and the title track of that album uh, was the big hit. And those of you who are of a certain age will certainly recognize these words. Imagine, there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no country. It isn't hard to do. There's nothing to live or die for. There's no religion to. Imagine all the people. And the most ironic line in the song by 1971 for sure. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Now, Lennon was forthright about the thrust of the lyric in that song. He's quoted as saying this. Imagine that there was no more religion, no more country, no more politics. I mean, virtually remember, imagine the Communist Manifesto. Even though I'm not particularly a communist and do not belong to that movement. That's what the anti-communist movement refers to as a useful idiot. Oh, no, 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 I'm, 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 bigger. I'm bigger than the movement. I'm just among the most significant propagandists of the movement in the Western world, and I don't even... No, it imagine all the people living life in peace. By the time he wrote that, the ideology that he's talking about had arguably overseen the murder of somewhere between 100 and 140 million people. Stalin, Mao. Paul Pot. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, this very ideological perspective has probably bled into the Western and American church more effectively than almost any other over this same period of time. And among the central features, of course, of that imagery, no hell below us, above us only sky. There's no such thing as lasting punishment. There's no such thing as a judge above. In other words, central to the the, sort of the anti-religion movement is this, Human beings are never answerable to anybody other than other human beings. Now, what that allows you to do, of course, is to create a mindset in which there's nothing more frightening 
And there's nothing more intimidating than the possibility or the threat that you might end up on the wrong side of history. Because it would be a lot more intimidating if you were somewhat worried about landing on or ending up on the wrong side of the living God. But once he's gone, once that idea is gone, once the concept of divine judgment is gone, all that's left is the kind of thing that we speak of and hear of with great regularity. Don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. Last 70 years, nothing, nothing, nothing has been worked harder on in pop culture than to make the idea of the divine judgment seem foolish, silly, dumb, backward, insubstantial. We've, we're, we're a generation that's learned our eschatology from the church lady on Saturday Night Live, if you're of a certain generation. Learned our eschatology from the movies, from popular songs, the study of the end. It's a bad choice. So you open up the Bible and you have somebody like the Apostle Paul summarize New Testament, biblical thinking on this topic, absolutely parallel to where we'll find Peter this morning. But Paul states it much more succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where he simply wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due in the body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uses that little word that Paul is so fond of and that Luke is so fond of throughout the New Testament, little word day, we must necessarily within the design and plan of God all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Absolutely inescapable. It's God's plan. It's what God has made necessary, certain, inviolable. And Peter, Peter, in our text for this morning, makes an argument for that broad outlook on life. Makes a largely a biblical argument for that outlook on life. I'll state our thesis for this morning this way. We would be wise to take seriously the reality of divine judgment. That's Peter's burden in, in this text. We would be wise to take seriously the reality of divine judgment. Because already in the first century, that was under attack, and there was a kind of false teaching that was encouraging people not to worry so much about that. And the first thing Peter does, as seen in our text, is he gives a brief history of divine judgment as as found in the Bible. Um, and really, it's a little narrower than that. And by brief, I mean he just, he, he just gives three examples. He's not trying to be at all comprehensive. He gives three examples, and he pulls all of them from the book of Genesis. He pulls one, the first one, from the first, six verses, first four verses of Genesis chapter 6, He pulls the next one from the overview of Genesis 6 through 8, and he pulls the third one from Genesis 19. Um, And I was thinking about this. I I was watching something, and uh, and, uh, a Harvard lecturer, longtime lecturer, University of Chicago lecturer, 
Leon Cass came up. Leon Cass, you may recognize that name. He was in the news from about 2001 to 2005. Uh, He's a historian, philosopher, physician, and he was the head of the President's Council of Bioethics uh, in Washington from 2001 to 2005. And interestingly enough, when that commission ended, uh, and Cass had taught by that time, so he was uh, he was 65 years old when when that ended. Two years later, two years later, he so as soon as that quit, he devoted his time to writing a 700-page book on the book of Genesis, which he published when he was 67 years old. It was called The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis at the University of Chicago. His, his big thing was to learn as much as you can from ancient Roman Greek thought. And by the time he was 67 years old, he thought that there was more there was definitely more wisdom to be drawn from the Jewish law than from everything that he had studied in his secular world. And he is a secularist. He's a humanist. He's, a, he's ethnically a Jew, but he's not. He did not practice Judaism. And then just last year, last year, he published a second book, 750 pages long, The Origins of Israel. The whole book is just one long diatribe from the book of Exodus. So those of you who have been coming to Sunday night, according to Leon Cass, you're right up front. This lifelong scholar, worldwide, renowned lecturer, devoted all of his time to the wisdom found in Genesis and Exodus. And Peter's way ahead of him. Peter's way ahead of him. Peter picks up the book of Genesis, and says, okay, let's talk about the history of judgment. So um, here's the first text that he lands on. Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Uh, Jude's parallel to that uh, puts it this way. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, as he kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these Peter is referring back to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and Jude is referring back to Genesis 6, 1 to 4. One of the weirdest and most hotly disputed passages in all of the Old Testament, and we're not going to unravel all all of uh, the various interpretations other than to say this, and this is the only piece that Peter's really interested in. At some level, angels are heavily involved And they were judged for their involvement. That's what he's interested in. That's what he's interested in. That in that ancient world, there was a rebellion against God to corrupt humanity that somehow came through the angelic realm. And the angels that were involved in that were judged and sent to hell where they remain presently. That's his argument. So that's, that's, that's just step one, history of judgment. There it is. It's real. It happened. But we've already been introduced to the broader sequence, right? So now, well, that just opens up the discussion of the flood. 
Genesis 6 through 8. And we're told, uh, literally, that Noah, um, Noah was the eighth. Um, which is a way of saying, as the ESV translates it, and most of the New Testament, uh, most English translations, right? Because the eighth just seems confusing. So they say, Noah and seven others. But what Peter wrote was just, Noah was the eighth. So seven people were spared the judgment, and Noah was the eighth. That's what he wrote. Noah was the eighth. Um, So the world is wiped out. I remember having a discussion 40 years ago with a friend who had abandoned the Christian faith. I've mentioned it before. And uh, he was at that time, um, uh, he had just finished a PhD in uh, religion at the University of Chicago and was then working on a um, PhD in philosophy. And philosophy is what he actually went on to teach in. He's taught at Purdue for many years now. And, uh, but he had... Uh, by, by that time, he had already abandoned uh, the faith at the University of Chicago, and we were we were arguing about this this very notion of the God of the Bible and and judgment. And for him, this just this sealed the case, right? So look, the whole idea, the whole idea of the Christian gospel that there's salvation in Christ and no one else is is just morally abhorrent. It's ridiculous. Uh, nobody can take that sort of thing seriously, and nobody would would want to believe in that kind of God. So there, one of the reasons why I certainly abandoned that. Now, in, in one sense, that is an excellent argument, if, if and only if, you've sort of intuited that there might be a God in that it's up to us now to imagine what he would be like if he's there. And we would never imagine that he would be a God who might possibly judge most of the human beings that he created in his own image. That's right. We would never imagine that. But it's no argument at all against the biblical God. Which is what I said to him that day. I said, come on, you've read the Bible. What does it say of the biblical God? It says he already wiped out everybody on earth except eight people. So yes, that's a fine argument against some speculative deity that you made up in your own head, but it's no argument at all against Christianity, which posits the Hebrew Bible as divinely revealed scripture. And Jesus Christ, who said, not a jot or a tittle will pass away from all that has been written. And he's talking about the Hebrew Bible. So he completely embraces the Genesis account. God is like that. And that's Peter's argument. There it is. Second historical example. God wiped out the world and saved eight people. He's definitely willing to judge. And then thirdly, the text that was already read earlier in the service, Genesis 19, and the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. That is, he had just left, he just gotten out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And then it even mentions that Lot's wife did not survive. Now again, 
Peter has only one thing to draw from the three stories, and that's this. Judgment is real. God is a God who judges. His last little line there, um, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly in the end. And so to his generation, like to ours, all he's really arguing is this. God is a God who calls the human race to account, and there is judgment. There is judgment coming. And there is something worse than ending up on the wrong side of history, and that would be to end up on the wrong side of God. The worst thing that can happen to anybody is they end up on the wrong side of God with no, uh, with no Savior and no help and no hope. That's what he argues. Makes those three stops in Genesis and says, here's reality. Secondly, consider the hope of rescue from judgment. Consider the hope of rescue from judgment. And this is woven right into the same account, right? Uh, As we see that Noah and the eight and then Lot is rescued. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So his first thing is Noah survived those dark days. Right? Here's how it's put in Genesis 6 again. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Tremendously encouraging little note there in three discouraging chapters, right? Uh, the book of Genesis, there's not too many more discouraging chapters then 6, 7, and 8, the destruction of the world. But in there, in there, it talks about the fact that it was still possible for a person to walk with God. That's good to know. In our own confusing times, our own dark places, our own great challenges. Whatever's going on in the culture, however bent it is, however confusing it is, however difficult it is, however disappointing it is, it was all of those things in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And in the midst of that, Noah walked with God and his three sons and their wives and his wives and his wife was saved with them. And, and there's the picture. And then Peter goes on to Lot, righteous Lot. Now, if you're, if you're relatively familiar with the Bible, you're tempted to roll your eyes as soon as he starts to talk about righteous Lot. Because, frankly, a cursory reading of the book of Genesis uh, does not cause a lot of people to name their sons Lot. Um, uh, Other than in Peter, it doesn't trip off of very many people's tongues and imaginations. Oh, Lot! You mean righteous Lot! 
Good old, wonderful, righteous Lot. No, we don't like Lot. We're anti-Lot. No. No, Lot. Lot, who moves to Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place for money because he thinks he can get ahead of his uncle there. Um, Oh, and by the way, when he gets there, and his soul's being supposedly, according to Peter, so tempted and tortured, he doesn't leave. He stays. He stays. And then all the major, major, major nails in his coffin all have to do with what he recommends a possible solution to the problem of the men of the front door with, as relates to his daughters. Righteous lot. Right? You say, you gotta be kidding. So what, what in the world was Peter thinking when he spoke of righteous lot? Well, I can tell you, Peter was thinking what he read in the Bible. That's what he was thinking. Um... Say, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean this. Genesis 18, 22 to 26. So the men turned from there and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Remember the three guys come. One of them is the angel of the Lord. So three angelic beings, one of them the angel of the Lord. It just somehow... Yahweh himself, and suddenly as the other two leave, the one that is left simply becomes the Lord in the text. Uh, He's not called an angel again. Uh, He stood before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the place for their sake. Now, as the story moves forward, it becomes as clear as glass that Abraham is not talking about 50 random righteous people with no particular person clearly in mind. No, from the beginning of this whole thing, he is negotiating for the survival of his nephew, Lot. He negotiates the Lord all the way down, you remember, to 10, verses 32 and uh, 33, Genesis 18. He says, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10, 10 righteous ones are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And then Genesis 19 opens. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate at Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to, the, to the, his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash, I shall wash your feet that you may rise up early in the morning and go on your way. And they said, no, no, we'll spend the night in the town square and 
um, he talks them all out of that. And then, of course, the whole sequence happens and the people come to the door. And, and Lot says, I beg you, brothers, not to act so wickedly. But did you notice in those righteous, 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 righteous. And what are the angels doing at Sodom? They are there to pull Lot out so that the righteous are not judged with the wicked in this case. This is what Peter sees. This is what Peter sees. Remember in the text, we're told at one point, the angels just tell him, the judgment can't go forward until you are out of the city. And in the whole narrative sequence, who's going to be out of this? The righteous. The righteous. And Lot is saved. Now that takes us to the other end of the spectrum, doesn't it? There's some comfort if you know yourself very well in hearing Lot called righteous. Especially some of us, right? If you, if you have a tendency to be a bit hard on yourself, then one of the things that you'll find yourself saying to yourself, and you do say to yourself, is this. Could someone like me really be a Christian? Someone like me. Someone as inconsistent as I. Some as cowardly as I. Someone as disappointing as I. And there are days in which our answer back to ourselves is, I doubt it. And we're tempted to despair. On those days, it's a good thing to remember. Righteous lot. Righteous but very disappointing lot. Very, very disappointing lot. Whom God rescues from judgment. Thirdly, consider the arrogance of false teaching. And with this, we'll just close off relatively quickly here. Um, verse 10b and 11. Here's the description of the false teachers. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Bold and willful. Bold and willful. They don't tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're not at all afraid. They're not at all afraid of blaspheming God or angels. In this case, probably somehow angels. It's, again, it's a little confusing exactly what Peter has in mind. But the broad, the broad sweep of what he's getting at is not difficult. These bold, arrogant people with no real fear of the spiritual realm, but somehow great confidence that they have nothing to fear in it, can say and do whatever they like and aren't worried about a thing. Uh, That's where they are. Uh, They, the end of verse 10, they indulge in lust of defiling passions and they despise authority. They despise divine authority. They despise angelic authority. They just despise it all. 
They're bold. They're confident. And we need to be careful that their confidence doesn't shake our confidence. That God will stand by his word, that that word is true, that judgment is real. Paul, speaking of Jesus' relationship to the invisible realm as a whole, summarized it this way in Ephesians 1.21. He is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. They despise dominions, but they're not actually above them. Only Jesus is above those things, all those categories of angelic beings and the supernatural world. And men imagine that they have nothing to fear from such things, and they, they, are, they are dead. They are dead wrong. There's a little linguistic tick in this, in this passage that's incredibly encouraging, and we'll close with it. Um, the word for spare, only, you know, he did not spare Sodom. It only occurs 10 times in the New Testament, which is a fair number of times. Luke uses it once in Acts 20. Paul uses it seven times. And then the last two uses, usages of it are in our text, in the, in the New Testament, where God didn't spare the ancient world, but judged it. And God did not spare the city of Sodom, but he judged it. Now, among Paul's usages of it, the most comforting, the most striking, goes to how it is ultimately that Abraham escapes the judgment of God, ultimately how Lot escapes the judgment of God, ultimately how anybody escapes the judgment of God. For everyone, as it turns out in the end, is saved through Christ. Whether you were a godly person before he lived or after he lived, it's all in Christ. Everyone who is elect, as Paul wrote the Ephesians, was chosen to be in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In him. Um, and so what an what a amazingly wonderful thing happens to us when, as we refer to it almost every time we go to the communion table, when we do the prayer over the broken body of Jesus, we refer to Romans 8.32, where that same little verb for spare shows up. I'll read into it through verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Now, how serious God is about judgment and how inescapable judgment is shines more clearly in the next couple of phrases than anywhere else in the Bible. For there it says, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He who did not spare his own son. In other words, that is, he allowed, as judgment hit the ancient world, 
for sin. Judge hit sin in the ancient world. God hit sin in the ancient world. God hit sin in Sodom. And God hit sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not his, but ours. That's how seriously takes judgment. That's how real and inescapable it is. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is your confidence in the reality of coming judgment found in Christ and Christ alone? It ought to be. It's the only safe place to put it. But it's an absolutely safe place to rest your confidence and your hope. Because God didn't spare his own son. But he punished the sin of his elect in his sinless son. And then raised him from the dead on the third day that he and we might have eternal and everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you are reliable to keep your word and your truth. It can be intimidating. You are certain to judge the human race at the end of the age. But you are equally certain to acquit, to accept, to bless all who are in Christ You did not spare your own son so that you might spare us from judgment we so richly deserve. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.